While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. still hot it's still really hot <laughs> we don't need to talk about how hot it is again like All who right. knows what the weather will be like in a week yeah it's that's, still hot that's true probably oh, still it's really so hot. it's probably so really rainy hot. have you know what's worse than that than what's not worse than the heat but i didn't realize that we were going to have a monsoon season this summer you mean like where every day it rains for, for like an hours? hour and it's like the worst <laughs> rain because it's combining with the heat. The rain is? To, yeah. To, Wait, the, is that it's how like it works? It's like a thousand percent humidity. I'm not saying that they're like combining and becoming like some kind of super weather. They're like just like teaming up. Okay. They're like and a tag by team. Their, by their forces combined, they're making it so much more miserable. Oh, so it's like Captain Planet. Yes. With our powers combined? Yeah. Wait, who's that? Is that... Captain I don't Planet? think that's Captain. Is that Planet. Wonder Twins? Captain Planet just is with your powers heart, combined. Kid. I think that's Wonder Twins. I don't know. I don't Form know. Form of a podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew, and we're Wonder Twins of a sort. Twins, anyway. Well, not really. We're wondrous of a kind. Kind of, but not not necessarily not like we're not tia and tamara twins <laughs> we're not like separated at birth <clears throat> then... wait were they separated at birth well at least on that show sister sister i don't think in real life oh is were. that the premise of sister sister i never watched sister sister all right, i let's only get, all right let's knew get sister, the sister theme out of the way real quick to sister sister. sister sister yeah and that's all um, i know they the the show opens with them shopping for clothes in the same department store and okay. their parents get them mixed up because they're coming in and out of changing rooms. So it's like a parent trap thing, except... Uh, I guess. Well, like, Lindsay Lohan's the parent trap. Well, she is the parent trap. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, sister, sister, their parents were divorced because they were separated at birth. And then the parent... So each parent got one? Like, what judge yeah. presided over that? I don't... <laughs> It didn't go into that. You'll never see each other, and you never have to tell them about the other twin. And I don't really Just know why. Just each of you get one. I don't really know why, but then the parents ended up getting together. And That's so the they, worst yeah. ever. So they had some sort of like messy home life where they got to like be mad at each other all the time, but you knew they really loved each other. Because they were separated at birth? No, not the twins. The parents... Oh, okay. The twins were totally cool with it because so they wait, got they to play all sorts of hijinks. They fought and they split up. Yeah. And the judge at this custody hearing was like, okay, halvesies, just right down the middle. Now, what they could have used was... Never, I a, just don't understand why there was like no <laughs> visitation and why they didn't... No. Was the premise that they didn't know each other? They didn't know. They, did, they didn't know, know about the existence of what, the, the girls? twin? Yeah. yeah, the girls did not know that they were twins. 
what? It, that's messed up. They seemed uh, unaware that that was like the who case. would do that? Maybe the parents thought, well, they're the same, so you go one, I go one, no biggie. Oh, that's so problematic. I think that show needed a Fresh Prince style opening rap where he explains the given circumstances in a cool two minutes to a I fresh beat. I think it beat. just needed a better circumstance. <laughs> oh, the circumstance was fine. Like, why don't you have it be like they lived on opposite sides of the country and then like one of them moved? I think or that something. was the case. And I it think was that like was an case. opportunity for them to get to know each other, but. It wasn't like they'd never met before in their lives. No, it's funnier. It's funnier if they meet in a department store. Funnier unless you consider how just how sad it is. Yeah. Well, I don't think that whoever was producing Sister Sister was interested in human wouldn't, drama. Wouldn't they be mad at their parents? I guess. Comically I mean, so. do you know do you know about Enough about sister sister to know that they weren't mad at their parents. I don't. That is that is uh, a good observation. I don't know okay. that. So, so you're kind of presenting yourself as a sister sister expert. I'm, I did no such thing. You're like Mister Sister Sister over there. I am. I am. <laughs> I am aware of the first ten minutes of Sister Sister ever. <laughs> I am aware of that. So for this podcast, you read um, the novelization of Sister, Sister, it's, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. The, ooh, that's my sister, the T and Tamara story. That's what I read. <laughs> what did you actually read? I actually read Antony and Cleopatra, a no less messy tale than Sister, Sister is, uh, by, okay, so by William Shakespeare, Billy Shakes. Explain to me first how you have not read this before as as an accomplished I don't know, like dramatic artist. Is oh, that what man. you call yourself? Theater. You... I say theater artist sometimes. I theater say, artist. That's okay. when I'm being general, and I don't have to. And I'm like wearing ten different hats, and I don't want to like talk about each different hat. I just say. Do theater people artist. not ask you why you're wearing all those hats? Well, I'm I'm sweating a lot, and it's very rude <laughs> okay. to point it out um, <laughs> from all those hats, but. Uh, I don't know. It's one of those things where I've never needed to read every Shakespeare play. You know, it's a thing that I would like to do, and I think that's reading plays that I own but have not read, and also books, etc. It was kind of part of the formation of this podcast, um, as we've talked about before. So I don't know. I just never got around to it. I've I think I read a play called All for Love, which is by John Dryden, which is like. 18th century version of Antony and Cleopatra that another English playwright wrote, but I've never read the actual Shakespeare. And it's a pretty late Shakespeare. It's 1608, I think. I know um, the Tempest is the last one, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. How close is this to being the last one? Well, let me double check. Well, this is not 1608. Oh, dang. This is, uh, it was first printed in the first folio of 1623, but I don't know now you're putting me on the spot andrew ah. it was <laughs> you know you like, no did you do like two pieces of research <laughs> and then now you're putting me on the spot look man don't don't blame me for you not being prepared okay it's fine so uh and that's why i had no i was right 1608 Antony and cleopatra was entered in the uh stationer's register which is like 
sort of like copywriting stuff around that time because you had to run all your plays by the Lord Chamberlain anyway. Uh, that was 1608, and The Tempest was 1610, 1611, they think. Okay. Um, so, so just getting up there. Yeah, you're getting up there. It's pretty late. And it kind of shows in the verse. It's a little messy. I'm going to keep using that word a lot because it's the best word that I can think of for it. Um, okay, so yeah, I guess where where do you want to start? And then I will ask, I'll jump in and I'll ask you questions and I'll ask you to compare it to Sister Sister for me. Great. Can't, as we go i didn't prep my sister sister book but i'll do my best you, i think you know enough about sister, apparently sister, like i obviously do <laughs> apparently i do uh so one of the reasons i wanted to read this when i was like oh I, I wanted to read a shakespeare i wanted to read a shakespeare since we started um and i also i was like well which could i do and i know that you were a classics major back so, in the day back in the day so maybe some of your latent Roman history knowledge will help me out here. So this is about the triumvirate of Octavius Caesar, Mark Antony, and can you finish it? I believe it's Lepidus. Lepidus, yeah. This is actually the second triumvirate after the one that was Caesar and Pompey and some other guy. Not Mark who, Antony? No. The okay. it was like a it was a generation before this okay. triumvirate. So Sextus Pompey is the other is the main antagonist of this triumvirate. So the whole like the overarching plot that purports to take place is that uh, Caesar, Mark Antony, and Lepidus are at war with Pompey, and Pompey's got some pirates that are working for him, and then Cleopatra is in Egypt, and that's kind of like the lay of the land. All does right. that so? Does that purport to take place, or does it actually take place? Well, uh, it sort of takes place. <laughs> like they make a big deal out of it. All right, let's start from the top. Let's... Is it one of those things where it, like that's kind of the backdrop, but you don't necessarily see all of those events play out, or like yes. what do you? Yes, okay. that's what I mean. All right, so the play opens up in Egypt, and it's a room. It's in Alexandria, Egypt, and it's in Cleopatra's palace where Antony is hanging out with Cleopatra because they have sex all the time. <laughs> and the play opens, and it's this guy named Philo and his buddy Demetrius, and they work for Antony. They're soldiers for Antony. And they're talking about how uh, Antony has changed. The first line of the play is them like in the middle of a conversation, and Philo's like, nay, but this dotage of our generals overflows the me- you know, overflows the measure, and he goes on to say that his captain's heart, which in the scuffles of great fights have burst the buckles on his breast, reneges all temper, and has become the bellows and the fan to cool a gypsy's lust. So it's basically... That's pretty unequivocal. Yeah. (laughs) He then says, the triple pillar of the world transformed into a strumpet's fool. Behold and see. And then Cleopatra and Antony walk in, and then they have a whole big scene where, like, they... I don't know. It's always he's trying to tell her how much he loves her, and she always doesn't, never believes him. And it plays like a real big shrew the whole time. Um, and that plays into like the overarching reaction I have to this play, which is I don't know how you ever do this play now because Cleopatra sucks real hard. What what sucks about her? She just seems like a really bad portrait of womanhood. She's just like because I think. Shakespeare's female characters are often kind of problematic in this way where they're kind of boiled down to 
whatever like the worst female stereotype you can think of is like there's just some kind of crazy hysterical harpy the whole time and like nothing they do makes any sense yeah the the i don't know that that's the case all the time you know you look at someone like lady Macbeth, and she's she's manipulative and power hungry and depending on how you want to play it very seductive etc and that's one way to you know that is a shakespearean woman and there are plenty of younger uh female like ingenue characters that are a lot goofier and stuff like that but Cleopatra is just, like, all over the place. So in the scene, the third scene, Antony, who's been away at Egypt, like, doing whatever, having sex, you know, he gets news from this messenger that his wife, Fulvia, died trying to fight Caesar, basically. And so he goes and he tells Cleopatra this, and she starts yelling at him. Because he's like, first, she thinks that he is delivering news that Fulvia wants him back and that he's going to leave her. So she's like, fine. Would she never said you should come here? Get out of here. Fine. And then he's like, no, you don't understand. She died. And then she gets mad. And then Cleopatra gets mad at him for not crying enough that Fulvia is dead. And she's like, oh, what would happen if I died? You'd clearly you'd be this upset. Clearly wouldn't be upset at all. Because this is how you react when your women die. And I can tell from the look on your face that, like, that's the worst, right? It's just this. Okay. Yeah, it's the worst. Go ahead. You know? And so he has to, like, he's being summoned by Caesar to go. (laughs) It sounds so stupid. But, like, some of these scenes feel like it'd be like, I have to go to work. No, you can't. If you go to work, you don't love me. Well, I have to go to work. So that I can come home and and love you later. How dare you leave for work? Like that is, it's like removed of the context of it being Antony and Cleopatra. It feels like a very silly, horrible spat between a married couple. Mm -hmm. Like a stereotypical one to the point where I think it reflects poorly on Cleopatra as a person. It's like the honeymooners. Yeah, yeah. Of of the day. <laughs> well, and then one of the recurring traits of Cleopatra is that when people talk to her and try to tell her things, she doesn't listen and she interrupts them all the time. Like, I'm trying to find the scene right now. Scene three, five, I think. Um, where she, this guy comes in and uh, so in the intervene something to tell you so what happens is that antony and caesar are like sort of friends in this play but not really like they go back and forth from hating each other all the time yeah they're like friends of necessity because they ideally they would balance each other out but like it's a really tenuous alliance and yeah they keep doing stuff without consulting each other and there's no there's no trust there no there's no trust And and that's one of the things that makes this play kind of confusing Um, and it's giving me a chance to be all sort of scatterbrained about it, is that a lot of the big alliance shifts almost seem to happen, like, offstage. Like, the latter half of the play, Caesar and Antony go back and forth on whether or not they're going to fight, and then they fight, and then maybe they're not going to fight anymore, and then they fight again. Um, And the reasons why, I think, are not very clear. Yeah, like, I I, I think that that's part of the... 
like the extant historical record we have of the relationships between these people, it kind of paints it that way. Like it's, it's a, it's a friendship slash alliance made out of necessity and, and made through like loveless marriages and just, it's kind of built on all this. It's built on ground. That's not very stable. And it's kind of like out of necessity. Eventually one of them, like one of the three people is going to have to overpower the other two just because it's not like in the long term, it's not tenable. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, because every little slight could potentially be huge, you know? Um, and so in act two, there's a scene between Caesar and Antony where Antony is kind of answering for all of the crimes of his brother and his wife who tried to attack Caesar. And the only thing that they can come up with to smooth this over is for Antony to marry Caesar's sister, Octavia. Mm -hmm. Well, then news gets sent back to Cleopatra, and how do you think she reacts? Oh, really, really well. (laughs) I bet bet she's like, oh, you don't love me. This is the worst. Well, no, because Antony doesn't go back and tell her. This is a... Like literal, literal, don't kill the messenger scene. Is if I if I were doing this scene, that is how I would like get it ready for rehearsal. Because this messenger comes in, the first thing he says is "Madam, Madam," and Cleopatra Cleopatra goes, "Antonius dead. If thou say so, villain, thou killest thy mistress." And then she like freaks out, and the messenger's like, "Wait, hold on a second. And then she's like, "Hey, if you tell me he's okay, I'm gonna give you a bunch of gold." And he's like, "Hey, wait a second. And then she flips out again, and he gets out, like, ten lines before he even gets any news to her, because she keeps going crazy. And she finally, you know, he finally tells her that Antony is fine, Caesar hasn't killed him, but he did make Antony marry Octavia. And she hits the guy, and as Shakespeare puts it, hails him up and down beating the crap out of him and then pulls a knife on him and then he runs away and then okay. she has him come back on stage to find out more about Octavia so she's literally i mean to the extent that you can shoot the messenger without guns being an invention she would, she's shooting the messenger she would shoot the messenger <laughs> and all of this goes to the like i don't know if I was reading this scene, and I don't know if it's supposed to be funny. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not... This is one of the plays where I guess you call it a tragedy, but it's so late in the canon that it almost doesn't really feel like one because it doesn't really follow the plot-driven uh, action of a Macbeth or a Hamlet, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and it doesn't really feel like a history because it's this weird adaptation of Plutarch. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, like, okay, so it's, it's it sounds like one of the things that you're having the most trouble with is just how Cleopatra is presented. Yeah. Do you think that she's playing off of... And, of course, you know, if in, in the time of this play's writing, she probably would have been played by a guy anyway, yes, right? Yes, a boy, yes. Like, do you, do you think that these kind of flighty things that she does and, like, interrupting all the time and being irrational, like, do you think that contemporary audiences would have seen this as being, like, really funny and, like, oh, look at the 
look at the silly woman. Isn't that just how women are? Or do you think that kind of comes into it at all? Maybe. Yeah. I, it's funny because then, then at the end of the play, when I'm trying to, I don't remember if Anthony is on stage or not when she says it, you know, skipping ahead to the part of the play where everyone's dead. Cause that's going to happen. Just spoiler. Everyone is sure. going to die. Okay. Um, <laughs> she, uh, she has these lines where um, she's talking about she's trying to debate whether or not she should surrender to Caesar after Antony dies or if she should, you know, kill herself. And she doesn't want to be led through the streets of Rome and remembered by the Romans. And she says, you know, these are lines. She imagines that the quick comedians extemporally will stage us and present our alexandrian revels antony shall be brought drunken forth and i shall see some squeaking cleopatra boy my greatness in the posture of a whore so it's like shakespeare even puts in this line at the end where it's like oh they're gonna turn me into a play and make me look like an idiot (laughs) and i don't i don't i haven't quite unpacked why that's there if that makes sense yeah like i can't i can't tell if if like playing Cleopatra as such like a broad female stereotype is something that was intentional or if it's something that I am reading into it. Yeah. Like something exactly. that modern audiences and commentators are reading into it. I mean, the I'm using the interrupting Cleopatra as a pretty like I'm harping on that a lot, but I was amazed that it happens about four or five times throughout the play mm-hmm. of characters from Antony all the way to like Caesar and this messenger getting one line off at a time in between bursts of her completely not hearing them Um, which is just kind of it happens so much that it can't just be a minor personality trait you know what I mean right yeah Um, so that that was my biggest reaction was just reading it going I don't know how you do this play like because there, you know, a lot of it is about the Romans who are all military oriented, and Egypt, which is this weird land of sex and women, um, and like their leader is this sexy woman who, you know, <laughs> <laughs> use your words, use my words, who you know seduced one of the triumvirate and completely, you know, poked a hole in that balloon and, and it all deflated, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other scene in the play that confused me from a tonal perspective is in Act Two. Antony is, you know, cool with Caesar. They're hanging out with Lepidus, and they're gonna fight Pompey, right? And they decide that they're all gonna, you know, get together before the fight. And this is pretty like standard for Shakespeare plays. They're gonna get together before the fight. And they're going to have a big party. They're going to feast. And potentially that that will lead to some truces, you know. So they all get wasted. (laughs) Like, actually, they get wasted. Like, the first line of the scene is a servant saying, you know, the least wind in the world will blow them down. Lepidus Lepidus is high-colored, you know. It's, and then, so they're joking about, like, snakes in Egypt and, you know, making Lepidus look like a doofus. And they kind of talk about maybe they shouldn't 
fight one another and they'll, you know, strike a truce. And then this guy, Enobarbus, who is uh, a general of Antony's, like, sings a song and they all dance. Okay. And then Caesar's like, maybe we've had a little bit too much. I should probably go to bed. Okay. And then we don't really hear about Pompey anymore. Like, then Pompey's just gone. Like, one of the pirates comes up to Pompey and says, hey, we probably should have killed those guys. And Pompey says, why did you say that? You should have just done it. Now we can't do it because that would be dishonorable. <laughs> and then they they move on. And the next you hear of Lepidus, uh, he was super hungover. And then the next you hear of him, Caesar locked him up because he's done with Lepidus. Okay. And Antony gets mad about that. And then Caesar and Antony go to war. Like, the play just moves through stuff so quickly. Do you, I mean, do you think it's counting on a certain, you know, because obviously this is, it's it's not, like, historically accurate, like, 100%. Like, that's not the first thing it's trying to do. But do you think that it is this, do you think it can safely assume a certain amount of knowledge on the part of the audience members I about would, like these events and how they play out? I suppose. I mean, it's from everything I've read, it's pretty fairly, it does hew rather closely to Plutarch, um, mm-hmm. which would have been the source that they had, you know, and would have been things that they would have studied that people, anybody who, was educated would have read Plutarch, but there were plenty right. of people seeing Shakespearean plays that weren't educated. Um, so at that point, I guess some of that, some of this stuff is being played for laughs because it's to the lowest, you know, common denominator as mm-hmm. many Shakespeare plays are. Um, it's not high tragedy by any means. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't know. He does, he does kind of imagine a lot about Cleopatra that I know is not from historical record. Um, she seems to be like what the, a lot of the scenes at her palace with her, you know, she has a eunuch that sings to her and she has her, you know, ladies in waiting where there's a whole scene where she asks them who are reporting back from Rome to describe Octavia for her because mm-hmm. she wants to make sure that Octavia is not pretty. Like that's the whole <laughs> goal of the scene is tell me that she is short and has bad hair and isn't as pretty as me and has an annoying voice and once she gets that she's satisfied and she's and she's fine i guess i don't i don't know what to make of any i know so then okay so then the the plot the quote-unquote plot that then drives forward is that caesar and antony are going to fight because antony declares himself and cleopatra uh, the rulers of Egypt and he says that that's the land he should have gotten from Caesar anyway and Caesar didn't give it to him and Antony's mad about the whole Lepidus thing so they go to war and despite everyone's advice Antony decides to go fight Caesar on the water like at sea and Cleopatra brings her boats for some reason I don't know why Cleopatra's there Everybody's like, she shouldn't be there. And Antony's like, no, it's totally fine. And then... <laughs> who's everybody? Like, who's... All of his generals. So he's got, you know, Barbus there. He's got Philo there. He's got another guy whose name begins with V. Now, is this? I assume this is the kind of thing where, like, 
all of the, like every time he ignores his generals because he's blinded by love, bad stuff happens. And that just keeps happening over and over again. Like that seems to be how these kind of things are handled. Yes. A lot of the time. Yes. So he, go, so they have the fight and they're battling um, at sea. I think this is the battle of Actium. It's supposed to be. I think. Yeah. Right. Um, and for whatever reason, Cleopatra gets scared or something. And her ships all flee so that she doesn't die. And Mark Antony follows her rather than staying in the battle. And so he's all ashamed and can't believe himself. And he's really mad at her for leaving and making him do that. So he basically wants to kill her for shaming him and losing the fight. And so the only way that Cleopatra can make Mark Antony realize that he loves her how do you think she can do that, Andrew? What do you think she should do? Um, probably kill herself. She fakes killing herself uh. and has a guy go up to Antony and say, hey, she's dead. She was so sorry that she killed herself. This really, I'm really surprised that this relationship is not working it's out. It's really like, not working out. It seems like it's on a rock-solid foundation and just they have so much in common. And <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> so then Antony asks his one of his soldiers, Eros, he's like, hey, Eros, can you kill me? Because Cleopatra's dead and I messed up. And Eros won't do it, so Eros kills himself. And Antony's like, oh, what a good man. I can now kill myself. But he messes up. He doesn't kill himself. He just hurts himself. He's like on the ground asking people to kill him. And they and they won't because he's Mark Antony and they love him too much. Uh, so then they like carry him to go see Cleopatra because someone shows up and is like, "Hey, Cleopatra's actually alive." And then Mark Antony dies, and then Cleopatra does the whole thing where she's not sure if she wants to surrender to Caesar or if she wants to kill herself, and then she ends up uh, killing herself with a bunch of snakes. Great, because it all works out. Because <laughs> this is how things go. So, okay, like, obviously, a contemporary audience, and I think that's crucial to understanding, yeah. like, the tone of so many of these plays. Like, obviously, pretty much anybody going into this is going to know that Antony and Cleopatra do not grow old together somewhere. No, and you this were... is going to have a bad ending. So, like, how does that hang over the proceedings like is that something that the text acknowledges at all or it doesn't what wait we i don't know if this is uh if this was on air or not you and i were talking about it that some you know something like romeo and juliet has a narrator has a chorus that'll tell you that this is all going to go bad and so there's some dramatic irony there right Mm -hmm. um i think because it is ostensibly ostensibly excuse me ostensibly a history play we are supposed to know that it doesn't work out and that's that um, so the text doesn't really acknowledge that it's not going to go well, other than in the kind of, like, meta references that I mentioned earlier, but that's not really, like, setting up uh, the conclusion that's part of the conclusion. No, but I mean, I'm not really necessarily talking about stuff that comes out, comes right out and says, hey, guys, this is going to this is gonna okay. go down poorly. I'm, I'm talking more about the subtext stuff because... When you get into these like Roman histories and things, like Plutarch does it, um, 
Livy does it. Like it's kind of everywhere. Is you'll end up with like portents and oh. and kind of things that make everything seem predetermined. And I'm wondering if I've that got two of them like, gets for you. carried over. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. One scene is uh, a soothsayer tells Mark Antony that he will always lose if he goes against Caesar. And there's actually like a scene. I'm, I wish I could remember the lines where uh, Mark Antony, they've been hanging out. He's been hanging out with Caesar and he's like, oh man, yeah, Caesar always wins at dice. Like th- he talks about all the things that Caesar always wins when they have like sporting matches together. This is totally part of the play. You're making a face like it's not. And it's totally part of the play. Okay. Um, and then, so there's like the soothsayer moment, which I think is kind of like a holdover from Caesar, you know, Julius Caesar. Um, it's a reference there. But then later in the play, in when they are at the field of battle in Alexandria, so I think in Plutarch's account, uh, Antony had like a different roman god or greek god watching over him okay but in the play it's hercules it's like the spirit of hercules or something and there's this scene where there's a bunch of soldiers on the battlefield and they start hearing like weird music and sounds coming from the earth and in the script it says music of the oat boys as under the stage and the oat boys meaning the oboes so there's oboes coming out of the earth that's the sound okay. <laughs> that's that's the sound that things are not uh correct and one of the soldiers says tis the god hercules whom antony loved now leaves him and so all these soldiers are kind of running around the stage hearing this you know portentous music that is supposed to be supernatural i think um that that portends uh to use that word twice um that things are not going to go well for antony and that he's going mm-hmm. to lose this battle Oh, nothing says supernatural like oboe music. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's it kind of harks back to this. This stuff kind of does crop up all throughout Shakespeare, and and definitely in the Roman, any of the plays that reference kind of Roman activity, like in Julius Caesar, when uh, the night before they kill Caesar, there's like a guy, a messenger who runs in, or I think it might be Casca who runs in, and talks about how they saw uh, the like a bunch of like fire like a dude with his hand was on fire and it wasn't burning him and the graves Mm -hmm. were opening up and stuff like that and you see it in Lear when there's animals walking around on the street for no reason Um, and they even reference the kind of evil supernatural events in Caesar in Hamlet Um, I think Horatio references that so you're right to to point out that this kind of thing does happen Um, Mm -hmm. and that Shakespeare is kind of like showing the world out of joint you know yeah um, as this thing is going down so yeah you know it's not gonna go well yeah, it's right I, I think one of the reasons that the play is so kind of confusing is that it has like 50 scenes in it to con- to give you a frame of reference midsummer uh has nine and hamlet <laughs> okay. has 20. Well, my I guess the scenes would have to jump back and forth in, in both like time and in geographical location a lot because there's stuff taking place in Egypt and then stuff taking place in Rome and. Let me give you a list of all the places that this place takes place. Okay. Alexandria, Rome, right. Sicily, 
Syria, Athens, and then a bunch of other battlefields and rooms in those various places. And like what? I mean, is it the same characters in all these places all the time? No. Or like like it'll cut back and forth between like Egypt and Rome, like scene to scene. And the scenes might be 50 or 100 lines long, which is not that much at all. It just it sounds like this could this play could have used some some honing. Yeah, and that's part it of it. Could have used an editor and and I you mentioned something earlier about the messiness kind of being endemic to late Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Like I I guess I don't know anything about the arc of of his like output, but what does that mean? Well, I was I was kind of alluding to two things there is that um I the the verse itself like the way that you know the words he's writing and and how he's using them feel a lot more just like straight poetry as opposed to always having an action behind them if that makes sense mm-hmm. um so there's a lot more kind of lamenting that doesn't have action behind it um and the, and the he breaks up the verse a lot more and is being a little less strict with his own, you know, normal tools. And then the other part of that is with the whole 40 or 50 scene thing, it's not a very clean five act structure. Okay. Um, and even the five act structure that you, you know, everybody gets taught in middle and high school was kind of superimposed on Shakespeare by the editors that compiled the first folio, Mm -hmm. but he was still writing stories that kind of, adhered to that general arc so this thing was kind of pulled the version that we have we don't know if it was what was performed it was probably taken from his notes and it was like you know however many scenes just kind of jammed in a row and then people published it um so we i don't know if this is necessarily exactly what was being performed when it was first performed or if you know, Shakespeare was trying to clean it up. You know, that's kind of one of the the issues you have with a lot with a lot of uh, these non-specific genre plays too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that I don't know. There's, a, I feel like I could go back. I read this for the for the podcast, and I immediately was like, "Oh God, I want to read it again," but because <laughs> it was so confusing, and it's funny to read Shakespeare. And and like like parts of it, and then be like, what is going on? You know, because it is even as someone who works in theater and and teaches Shakespeare and and stuff like that, it's not all perfect. It's good, and it's probably better. Some of it is better than anything anyone I know could write. You know, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's not all excellent. Yeah, and I we may have talked about this on other play podcasts before, but Shakespeare is not something I can't. It's not something I can read without commentary and like stuff to just explain to me what his English is saying. Yeah, because both because it's like four hundred years old and because of the verse that he's using, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it it can be kind of hard to divine what he means from what he's saying. Oh yeah, and and it's one of those things too where it's like. I know I know whenever I go to see Shakespeare it takes a scene or two for my brain to adjust to even just hearing the way that people speak 
Um, Because a lot of times the way he's laying out words is purely because he's trying to adhere to a to a meter. You know, Mm -hmm. there's no he's he's making new words to adhere to that meter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so I did end up reading. I tried to read like the first time I sat down with this, I read probably an act or two and I was like kind of reading it out loud quietly to myself because it's a lot easier to make sense of it that way. Um, but then as I was reading the latter half of it and the scenes just like kept going and it would be like, they're on a battlefield dude comes out and says 10 lines and then we're on another part of the battlefield and we're going and it feels like I need a camera to cut through all these, to cut from like all these places. Um, (laughs) and it's really hard to, to kind of keep track of what's going on. And there were scenes where it's like Caesar comes out and he's mad about something and I had no idea why, (laughs) like I just missed it. Um, and then in the meantime, like I kind of knew going in that Cleopatra was going to be an interesting part of this read. And then she kind of dominated my attention through the read. So if I were going to go through it again, I would probably try to pay more attention to the structure um, yeah. or what structure there is. Well, maybe between now and the next time we record, you can read it again. And That doesn't sound like a bad be- idea, actually. At the beginning of the next show, if there's anything that you just got totally 100% wrong, you can correct I yourself. I would be happy to do so. Um, we are getting close to like the 45-ish minute mark. I don't know. But I think we're going to wrap things up. Yeah, so if thank you for listening to our podcast. Uh, as always, you can... Follow us on the Twitter at Overdue Pod, and you can also find us at uh, on Facebook. You can either search for Overdue or you can just type in facebook.com slash Overdue Pod. Um, whenever we post new episodes, we'll put them up in both feeds. Um, I think we're slightly more active on Facebook just because we have more room to to write yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's, it's easier to share links and, and comment on why we're sharing them or, or anything like that. So. Yeah, but um, e- either or it would be great. Uh, we also have a Gmail address at um, overduepod at gmail.com that you can hit. If you have any questions or book suggestions or any of that stuff, we are all too happy to hear it. And so. if you need a central location for all this information, you can just go to overduepodcast.com. Do they need the www, Andrew? They don't need the, no. But they, they can put it in if they want to, right? They can put in http colon forward slash forward slash www.overduepodcast.com and that will get them there but they don't have to do it great but once you're there you can find all of our back episodes you can find a links uh you can find links to our itunes page which we hope you will rate and review us at or you can subscribe to our rss feed Uh, you can hit amazon links to pick up any of the books that we've read or the next two one of the next two books that we will read and that way you can keep up to date to what's going on and also support us along the way. I think that's it. Is that it? Yeah, I think that I think you hit everything. Great. Uh, thank you for listening and we will be back next week. Awesome. Bye. I don't know if it was one of those things where, like, there's, like, a narrator who...
breaks the fourth wall sometimes. Oh yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. like exposition, and he's just talking to another guy to provide exposition. No, it's it really is. I don't think you ever see Philo for like. I a think long you time. played that narrator character in every single play that I saw you. In. That's not true. You were always like the audience surrogate. Yeah, well, I like that role. Yeah, it's a good role. I'm a I'm an everyman. When you weren't wearing a diaper, oh, you were up. the audience surrogate. I was trying to remember the name of that diaper play the other day. I texted you about it at Reunion. That was a long time ago. I don't I don't remember anymore. 